Ethan. I'm here with my wife, Amanda, and my son, Judah. And it's just such a blessing to be able to worship with you all this morning. I've known about Cross Covenant for a while now. We're members at Cross Park, your sister church, and I get to serve alongside Pastor Jeff and Jordan there. And we've been really blessed by the fellowship there. And it's so encouraging to um, see that God is at work throughout the city of Charlotte, across cultures, and it's just such a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, I do want to make one note that we've placed a biography in the bulletin, and you can learn more about us there. Um, you might look at my son and think, wow, that's an incredibly small three-year-old. Um, that was a typo on my part. He was not born in 2016, but just this past January, and it's been such a joy to have him. I'll be preaching in just a moment from Luke chapter 14, and um, this is a section of Luke's gospel that's often called by scholars the travel narrative. And the travel narrative is called that because Jesus is traveling. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and as you probably know, he's on his way there to die. And this is a unique section in Luke's gospel. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap with the other gospels here, and it has some of our favorite stories that Jesus teaches, some of our favorite parables, like the parable of the prodigal son. Um, so as we study this passage together this morning, I want you to remember that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to die. But before I read this passage, I also want to take this opportunity to remind you of something that I know I often can forget. Um, the Bible tells us a lot about the gifts that God gives us and how those gifts demonstrate God's love for us. We can think of the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of resurrection with Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on, but in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul describes pastors as gifts. So since Pastor Allen is not here this week, I just wanted to remind you of that, that Pastor Allen is a gift to you from the Lord, and it's evidence that Christ loves you and cares for you. Let's read together Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. You can follow along in your bulletins. Remember, this is God's word, and he wants to speak to us this morning. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we desire to hear from you this morning. 
we know that unless you speak to us, we are lost. We need your word. So I pray that you would speak to us as we, your servants, listen for you. We ask this in your powerful name and for your glory. Amen. For as long as God has had a people for himself in this fallen world, those people have been suffering because of their decision to follow Jesus. Way back at the beginning, Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, he was killed because he brought a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. Noah was ridiculed by his neighbors because he listened to God. Abraham became a lifelong refugee because he trusted in God's promise. Moses lost earthly riches and access to power because of the calling of the Lord on his life. Hannah gave up her son to serve in the temple because she recognized that he was a provision from the Lord. David lived for many years without a home, fleeing from people that wanted to kill him, and some of them were his own family members. And this was sometimes because of David's own sin, but it was also sometimes because he was a man after God's own heart. As we consider the suffering that God's people have faced in the past, and as we consider this passage this morning, we're confronted with a question. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Skipping ahead a little bit in the history of God's people, the prophet Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of the city of God and the deportation of all of God's people, and yet he kept on preaching. The prophet Isaiah faithfully preached to a people that did not want to listen to him, and at the end of his life, tradition tells us that he was sawn in half. He was cut in two because he was faithful in following the Lord. In Hebrews 11, that famous passage in the New Testament that is often called the Hall of Faith, it describes the suffering of countless unnamed people throughout the Old Testament. Some of them were tortured. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were flogged or whipped. Some of them lived without homes, or they lived on the run, and all because they were followers of the true God. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? And all of these things happened even before the coming of Jesus Christ. And even though the coming of Jesus Christ and power represented the coming of the kingdom of God in a new and powerful way, people have still suffered because of their decision to follow Jesus after the resurrection, after he ascended in victory. Paul was beheaded because of the gospel. Peter was crucified for his faith. The early church father, Polycarp, was tied to a stake and partially burned before he was stabbed in the heart because he was a follower of Jesus. Not long after him, a godly woman named Felicitas, she was killed with her seven sons because she trusted in Jesus. And the list could go on and on. Augustine in Africa faced invading barbarian armies, and yet he remained there because he wanted to be a faithful pastor. Martin Luther lived a long life running from a pope or an emperor because of the gospel. John Calvin worked himself to an early death because he wanted to care for his people. Hudson Taylor left everything behind to become a missionary to China. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged because he resisted the evils of Nazi Germany. And in even more recent years, 
Coptic Christians in Egypt have been put to death because of their faith in Jesus. And as you may well know, Christians in China, like Pastor Wang Yi, are facing heightened hardship and opposition and even imprisonment because of the gospel. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Most of us know that Jesus did not come to give us a happy life here and now. Most of us know that to be a Christian means that we will suffer. And most of us know that we'll face hardships in our lives because of our faith in Christ. And yes, who can say? Some of us might even be called to die because of our faith. Not all are called to die a martyr's death, thankfully. Not all are called to poverty. Not all are called to be refugees. But Jesus teaches us in this passage that everyone who would follow him must take up their cross. Have you counted the cost? And the reality is that Jesus could demand all of this from us just because he's God and we're not. He could demand that we suffer with faith and patience. He could demand that we give up our lives for him. And he would have the right to do that because he's the sovereign Lord. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. But thankfully, Jesus is such a kind and loving Savior who condescends to his people that he doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us how we should do it and why we should bear our crosses. And of course, we know that he himself bore the cross for us. So Luke 14, 25 through 33 is all about counting the cost. And for the remainder of our time together this morning, we'll be considering First, the how of counting the costs. How do we count the cost in the Christian life? The why of counting the costs. Why should we care? Why should we count the cost as we seek to follow Jesus? And finally, the who of counting the cost. Who has counted the cost for us? So first, let's consider the how. You know, I think I could stand up here today and say, Jesus wants you to count the cost. And I would have given you the main point of this passage. Sermon over. I think I can go home now. We can end the service because that's what this passage is about. Jesus wants you to count the cost. But thankfully, he doesn't just tell us that we should count the cost. He also tells us how we should count the cost. And if we look more closely at these three illustrations that Jesus gives us in this passage, we get a better idea of what it means to walk with Jesus day in and day out, even if that means walking with him in suffering. One of the ways that we count the cost, we see in verse 26, when Jesus confronts us with this question, and the question that he confronts us with is, do I love Jesus more than everything else? Remember, Jesus is at a point in time in his ministry when he's traveling to Jerusalem, and there are actually great crowds of people other than just his 12 disciples who are following him at this point. But Jesus recognizes that some of them are not following him for the right reasons. He recognizes that some of them have not considered that following him might mean suffering, that following him might even mean sacrificing in some way or another the relationships that they have with their families. Now, when Jesus says you must hate your family, that's a pretty provocative thing to hear, isn't it? And He's not actually saying that after this service, you should go home and be a jerk to your spouse. 
or that you should be rude to your children. Of course, we know this. This is actually a, a common way of speaking in Jesus' day. And the effect of what he's trying to communicate is not that you should be mean to those that God has given you as family, but that you can't love anything, even your family, more than you love Jesus if you're going to be a follower of him. So we don't really need to hate our families, but that doesn't make this teaching any more palatable. It doesn't make it much easier to obey, does it? Aren't we supposed to put our families first? Aren't family, isn't family one of the great gifts that God has given us in our lives? What is greater than the joy of fellowship and of relationship with your spouse or the the love and joy of, of looking at your newborn child or the, the companionship that you have with your brother or your sister. Family is one of the great gifts that God gives us. And how could it be that Jesus is asking us to in some way or another hate them or to, to sacrifice our relationship with our family if it means following him? I want you to really consider how would you respond if we didn't just read this passage this morning, but if Jesus himself stood up here and, and gave this teaching to you, what if he said to you, you might need to hate your family to follow me? Now, thankfully, very often we don't have to choose between our families and Jesus, but we need to ask ourselves, what if you did? What if following Jesus meant doing something that was going to hurt a relationship that you have with a family? What would you do? Do you love Jesus the most? And we know that this question doesn't just apply to our families. We could think about something else really important in our lives, like our careers. No matter what job has called you to do, the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that our jobs, our vocations, are our portion from the Lord. It's a sweet gift. It's an incredible gift that God would not just call us to relationship with him, but he also enlists us as his servants, as his workers in his kingdom. But how often when someone asks you to tell you about yourself and you're, you're getting to know one another for the first time, how often do we begin with our jobs? How often do we begin describing the work that we do? And we know this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is if it's indicative, if it shows that we love our work or place our identity in our jobs more than that we're followers of Jesus. What would you do if following Jesus came into conflict with advancing in your work or your career? What would you do if following Jesus meant that you had to give up study time and you couldn't be as prepared for that exam because you knew you had to be in relationship with your friend and encourage them, or you had to spend time worshiping with God's people on the Lord's Day? What would you do if you felt tempted to just steal a little bit from your company? You know, they have plenty of resources. It's not going to hurt them. This can really help me or my family. What if in this way or many other ways, following Jesus came into conflict with your career, with your job? Do you love Jesus the most? And this question applies beyond family, beyond work. And I'd love now, just for a moment, for, to encourage you to reflect. What are some other things in your life that you might be tempted to love more than Jesus? If it's not family, if it's not work, is it comfort? Is it riches? Is it entertainment? 
What might God be calling you to give up for the sake of following Jesus? Ask yourself honestly, do you love Jesus the most? So that's the first illustration that Jesus gives us in this passage. And the second one has a similar point to the first, and it's found in verses 28 through 30. And here Jesus is using the example of a builder. And he's, he's saying that no experienced builder would ever begin a project and fail to plan ahead to make sure that he or she has enough resources to finish that project, whether those resources be time or money or you have it. And he says, if the builder fails to do this, that everyone will laugh at them. And Jesus is kind of implying, yeah, they probably should. They should laugh at them. The builder didn't plan ahead like they should have. I was in South Florida, uh, my hometown, this past weekend, and I was driving around with my parents. And we were in a part of town that I was pretty familiar with, but some miles off in the distance, and in Florida you can see miles in the distance because everything is flat. Uh, miles off in the distance, I saw this huge structure. And I could tell that it was a building, but I couldn't quite make out what it was. And as we got a little closer, I realized that what I was looking at was a 20 or 30 or 40 story tall building in the shape of a guitar. And there's this hotel in South Florida, the Hard Rock Hotel. They're all around the nation. You might have heard of it. And the Hard Rock Hotel decided, okay, we've got uh, this great opportunity here. We're going to build a hotel in the shape of a guitar, and it's going to be awesome. People are going to see it from miles away, and they're going to be, man, I want to go to that hotel. But the funny thing is, I noticed something strange about this structure. The guitar was built, and it was, it was placed vertically, you can picture it, and it's this massive structure, but it doesn't have the guitar neck, you know, the part of the guitar that Jonathan was playing earlier, the frets, the, the long skinny part. The neck was totally missing. And as I talked to my parents, I discovered that the builders of the Hard Rock Hotel did not plan ahead to discover that there were actually laws in this area of Florida that limited how tall a building could be. So they weren't even allowed to build the neck of the guitar. They only had about half of a guitar. And this thing that began as an exciting project that people would look at and say, wow, sort of became a joke. What is a guitar without its neck? And similarly, we would be foolish, just like those builders of that hotel, we would be foolish if we did not prepare to suffer as followers of Jesus. So in addition to asking if we love Jesus the most, we must also ask if we've considered the cost to ourselves. And I hope that our little survey of the history of the suffering of God's people earlier, we only looked at the tip of the iceberg, I hope that that helped you to consider this question already. And this question is really what this sermon is all about. Have you counted the cost? Do you know that following Jesus means suffering? Because it turns out that being a follower of Jesus, part of it means looking ahead and actually planning about our suffering. Now, Jesus isn't asking us to have some prophetic awareness of the day that we'll die or the hard things that we're going to be facing in this next year. But he is asking us to face the reality that following him means that we'll suffer. Remember, many people at this time in Jesus' ministry were following him around, 
physically with their bodies. They're actually walking after Jesus as he traveled to Jerusalem. But Jesus knew that some of them weren't following him for the right reasons. Some of them just wanted Jesus' stuff. They wanted um, healing that he could provide for them. They wanted a meal that he could provide for them in a miraculous way. Some of them um, were just following Jesus to be entertained. They knew that he was a powerful preacher. Matthew says that he didn't preach like the scribes and the Pharisees, but he preached with authority. So they followed him because listening to him entertained them and tickled their ears, so to speak. And Jesus knew this, and that's why in the beginning of our passage in verse 25, he turns to them. And in a sense, by the Spirit, Jesus is turning to you. And he says, have you counted the cost of following me? Have you prepared to suffer? Now, this question is not just for people who are considering whether they want to put their trust in Jesus for the first time. This isn't just a question that we ask going into our life of following Jesus, although we should certainly do that. And if you're at a place of wondering whether you want to follow Jesus and put your trust in him and make him your Lord, you should count the cost. You should know that it involves suffering. But this is also a question that is for all of us. Whether we've been following Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, Jesus is asking you day in and day out to count the cost of following him. And even though there are many areas in which we might suffer because of following Jesus, the most common one, and the one that I know each and every follower of Jesus faces, the most common way that we suffer in following Jesus is by fighting our sin. Not all of us are called to suffer in the same way, but all of us are called to suffer as we battle our sin. Because it's hard to resist our temptation. If you've lived with Jesus long enough, you know that that's true. It's hard to resist the allures of our sin. It's hard to fight sin, too, when we begin to include other people in our lives. And when we realize that part of following Jesus actually means living vulnerably, both before God as we respond to his word and prayer, and living vulnerably with one another. Following Jesus means inviting other people into our lives, and inviting them into our lives often means that they see our sin and our shame. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once said, that hell is when someone looks at you. And he was by no means a Christian man. He had a lot of really bad ideas, but there's a kernel of truth in what he's trying to get at when he says that, because we know when we see that other people see us and our sin, it hurts. It hurts like hell. And that's something that God has called us to if we're going to follow Jesus. Fighting our sin is hard, but we must suffer in that way as disciples of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I need this sermon. I can't tell you how many times I'm actually surprised when I face the smallest kinds of suffering. You can ask my wife after the service today. I'm actually surprised when I face any kind of hardship, and some of those hardships aren't even because I'm following Jesus. They're just because we live in a fallen world. So I need to be reminded that part of following Jesus means suffering, so that next time I face suffering, I, I don't need to get sinfully frustrated. I don't need to respond in unbelief, but I can suffer faithfully as a follower of Christ. And as I just mentioned, we do need to remember that not all of our suffering comes because we follow Jesus. 
Some of our suffering comes because of our own sin, just like in David's life. Some of our suffering comes because of the sin of others, but it doesn't have any connection with whether I'm a follower of Jesus or not. Some of our suffering comes and we just have no explanation for it. We don't know why. We know God's in control. We know he's good, but we can't explain why we're facing this suffering. So it would be foolish and unholy for me to say, ah, I am suffering for Jesus every time I'm in some traffic. Uh, There are obviously ways that we can misunderstand Jesus' point here, but it would also be foolish and unholy if we didn't consider that Jesus would ever call us to suffer for him. I know we've been talking a lot about suffering today. I promise that's not all we're going to talk about. When it comes to suffering, we can fall into two different extremes. On the one hand, we can pretend that our suffering is insignificant and that the way forward is just to ignore it, to move past it, to pretend that it doesn't exist. And on the other hand, we can pretend that our suffering is ultimate, that it it is definitive of who we are, that if I'm suffering, I can't have joy. I can't enjoy life with my family or following Jesus if I'm facing some hard thing. And we know that both of those extremes are wrong. Our suffering isn't insignificant, but it's not ultimate. And I want you to know, as we seek to avoid those extremes, that even though I don't know the kind of suffering that some of you are facing today or have faced in the past or God might be calling you to face in the future, I want you to know that Jesus never takes your suffering life. Whether you're struggling with a broken relationship with a family member or a friend, whether you're facing the reality of unfulfilled dreams, whether you're dealing with failing or troubled health, Jesus does not take your suffering lightly. He does call you to suffer, but the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest in Jesus who's able to sympathize with our sufferings because he's suffered before us and he suffered for us in our place so that's our big question from the second illustration have you counted the cost to yourself the third illustration is found in verses 31 through 32 you can look at it in your bulletin or in your bibles and here jesus confronts us with the question are you willing to go to war remember the whole big point of this sermon is that to follow Jesus means we must count the cost of following him. But I think that Jesus uses these three different illustrations to to get at some, some more specific applications. And here, I think Jesus is using the example of war to remind us that to be a Christian means being a soldier. No, that doesn't mean we should join a crusade. That doesn't mean we're all called to be in the military. It means that day in, day out, Being a follower of Jesus means going to war with the world, with the flesh, and with the devil. As Christians, we're called to resist those who openly oppose God and the world. We're called to resist the sin that is inside of us that we still struggle with as Christians. And we're called to resist the devil who tempts us and accuses us and wants to destroy us. But we don't resist the world with weapons, with swords or guns or anger or violence. We resist the world by preaching the gospel. We don't resist our sin 
by beating ourselves up. We resist our sin by remembering that we've been washed with the blood of Jesus, by remembering that we've been invited to fellowship with him. In other words, we resist the world and we resist our sin through the word and the sacraments, the means that Jesus has given us to change us, to transform us, to show us who he is. And finally, we don't resist the devil by going it on our own. We resist the devil by prayer. Remember what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. He says, he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the way that we go about being soldiers for Jesus is by listening to and proclaiming the word, by receiving the sacraments, the visible signs that God has given us to show us how much he loves us, to assure us of his promises, and by being in prayer. Part of following Jesus means counting the cost, and part of counting the cost means that you're willing to go to war. If you're not prepared to be a soldier for as long as you live, you're not prepared to be a Christian. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. We all face spiritually dry seasons. We all face uh, relapses in our Christian walk. We all face times when we see more or less victory in our struggle with sin. And I don't want you to think that being a Christian soldier means that we'll always feel victor- victorious. Excuse me. Being a Christian soldier means that we're willing to fight. Because Jesus is the one who secured the victory for us. And after he returns, we know that we will rest and that that rest is secure. We're not, when, we're, when we talk about being a soldier for Christ, we're not talking about earning our salvation or some way trying to please God in a way that Jesus has not already done for us. Our rest is secure, but we've still been called to count the cost. Are you willing to go to war today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, 30 years from now? Are you willing to go to war for the glory of Jesus. I don't want you to grow weary in the fight because Jesus is with you and he's promised to carry you to the end. He said to his disciples before he descended, remember I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So keep on fighting. In summary, how do we count the cost? We count the cost by loving Jesus the most. We count the cost by really dealing with the reality of the future suffering that we might preparing to suffer, and we count the cost by being willing to go to war. Now we're going to consider why we should count the cost and who's counted the cost for us. And I promise these sections of the sermon aren't quite as long as the first one. We've been alluding to this reality already, but we haven't explicitly asked the question, why should we count the cost? Why should we ask the question, if we're willing to face suffering for Jesus? What are the dangers of failing to count the cost? What are the rewards of counting the cost? In other words, and maybe you've asked this question, it's okay if you have, why, Ethan, why should I care? Why should I count the cost? And Jesus gives us two answers to this question. In one way or another, some of them are more explicitly found in this passage, and some of them are taught elsewhere by Jesus but I'm going to mention both of them. Jesus gives us both a warning and an an encouragement in his answer to this question. And he issues this warning. He says, if you don't count the cost, this is the implication of our passage, if you don't count the cost, 
you may not persevere in faith until the end. Crowds and crowds of people are following Jesus. This passage is situated in the travel narrative. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Remember this. So crowds are following him, but Jesus is on his way to die. And everyone in that crowd, even Jesus' closest friends, will abandon him when he goes to the cross. They'll abandon him. And praise God, by grace, they'll be restored. They'll be brought back into relationship with him. And they'll be sent out to do powerful ministry, to preach the gospel, to lay the foundation of God's church. And that means that when we fail to count the cost, it's not all over. We know that we're imperfect. We know that we'll never perfectly count the cost. But that doesn't take away from the danger of failing to count the cost. It doesn't take away from the offense to God it is to remember the great sacrifice that he's made for us and what he might be calling us to sacrifice in turn. Not to pay him back, but because we love him because he first loved us. Without Jesus, no man, woman, or child can stand before the judgment throne of God. And I don't want you to be afraid if you trust Jesus. That's not the point. If you trust Jesus, you're safe forever. But part of trusting Jesus means counting the cost. Part of trusting Jesus means being willing to suffer for him. And if we're not willing to suffer for him, that doesn't mean that faith doesn't save us. But it might be like what the Apostle James talks about in his letter. It might be a dead faith. A faith that doesn't produce good works is a dead faith. It's not real. And a faith that isn't willing to suffer as we follow Jesus might be in the same place. That's the warning. But there's another reason that we should count the cost, and it's not a warning. It's an encouragement. Because if we do count the cost and follow Jesus anyway, the Bible teaches that we gain everything. We gain everything. Counting the cost, imagine a scale. Counting the cost means taking all of the suffering that we could possibly face, that we faced in the past, that we're facing now, that we might face in the future. And it means putting it on one side of the scale. And it means putting Jesus on the other side of the scale. And it means seeing that Jesus is heavier. Jesus is weightier. Jesus is better. Jesus is worth all of the suffering that God might be calling you to face. He's worth it. He's better. He's greater. And we've spoken a lot already about what Christians in the past and the present have given up to follow Jesus. But we need to remember what have they gained. And Hebrews 11, which discusses the suffering that Christians, that followers of the true God have faced in the past, It doesn't just talk about their suffering. It talks about what they've gained, too. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of of Egypt. Somehow, someway, he knew that suffering for being a follower of God actually made him richer than if he remained a royal son in the richest nation in the world at the time. It says that Abraham, the refugee, he looked forward to the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, Moses, fill in the blank. Christians give up a lot when they follow Jesus, but they gain Christ. And this is true of every person I mentioned earlier, and this is true of you if you trust Jesus. We may face incredible hardship, but in the light of eternity, each and every one of us 
will not consider for a moment that our suffering was what ultimately mattered because we will have gained Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prize of heaven. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field that's worth selling all that you have to go and purchase. He's worth it all. And when God gives us his son, will he not also with his son give us all things? The Psalms talk about the pleasures of God that are at his right hand forevermore. And God offers us those pleasures in Christ. He offers us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in the opening of Ephesians. Elsewhere, Jesus says that anyone who gives up family for him in this life will actually in this life receive so much more than they gave up because anyone who gives up family for following Jesus is brought into the family of God. They're brought into the church. Anyone who sacrifices career for the sake of Jesus gets the greater pleasure of being a servant in his kingdom, of being a worker for the true God, of hearing him say to you at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. So no matter what you give up for Christ, you cannot give up more than what God has promised to give you in Jesus. Now there are two ways to hear the words of Jesus and to utterly fail to respond as he would want us to. First, we can fail, and I hope this is obvious to you at this point. We can fail by not counting the cost. We can just ignore the hard realities of following Jesus, and often what comes of that is when those hard realities come, we begin to doubt that God is good or that he's for us or that he's able to deliver us. That's why it's so dangerous not to count the cost. But that's not the only way that we can respond poorly to Jesus' teaching. We can also actually count the cost, actually consider what it means to follow Jesus and the suffering that we might face, and in response we become discouraged. That is not Jesus' point. That is not the point of this sermon. He doesn't want you to be discouraged. Because as Christians, we can count the cost and respond with joy. Because Philippians 4, to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what, if you're a Christian, your destiny is not loss, it's gain. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that martyrs who might be considered by the world weaklings or failures, they're not failures. It describes martyrs, people who die for their faith in Jesus as conquerors. It says that those who follow Jesus will rule with him forever and ever in perfect bodies, in a perfect universe, free from sin and death. So Jesus is pleading with you in Luke 14. I want you to count the cost, but I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to count the cost of following me and actually rejoice. So that's the how and the why. Finally, let's consider the who of counting the cost. Who has counted the cost for us? We've mentioned multiple times already that in this passage, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. And the beauty of this teaching, the reason that we really shouldn't be discouraged when we hear these words, even though they can be difficult to hear, is that Jesus isn't teaching us to do anything that he's not about to do himself. And his cross 
is far heavier than any cross we will ever have to bear. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God against all the sins of all God's people throughout history. We mentioned a scale earlier. If we put on one side of the scale all of the suffering of God's people that they've ever faced thousands of years ago to today to the future, and we put all of that suffering on one side of the scale, and we put Jesus on a cross on the other, Jesus' suffering is greater. He never calls us to suffer something greater than what he suffered for us. Jesus counted the cost. He didn't go to the cross blindly. He says that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Why? How could Jesus actually count the cost? How could he actually know what is ahead of him and yet still go to Calvary? And the Bible gives us two answers to this question. Jesus went to the cross first because of the delight of obeying his Father. And second, he went to the cross because of the love that he has for his people. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, tells us that Jesus was actually determined to exchange the joy that he had with the Father and the Spirit before all time. He was willing, he was actually determined to give up that joy so that we could have life. He gave up joy and took a cross so that we could have the crown. And in John 17, the high priestly prayer, there again it describes the glory that Jesus shared with the Father before all worlds. And yet in that very same passage, Jesus is describing just how committed he is to keeping all of those that the Father has given to him. And the way that he keeps his people is by dying for them. Truly, as a human being, Jesus feared the cross. So if you fear suffering, you're not alone. Jesus did too. With respect to his humanity, Jesus didn't desire to go, and yet he submitted his will to the Father because of the great joy, the great delight of obeying his Father, the pleasure he got from obeying his Father, and because of the great delight of saving his bride. Jesus counted the cost, and he said, you are worth it. You're worth it. You're worth everything that I'm going to suffer. So he was able to go with joy. And this is precisely the joy that you're invited to share. We too can experience delight and joy in obeying the Father even when we suffer. We too can experience the delight and joy that Jesus had when we count the cost. And we can love him the most. We can consider what suffering we might face. We can go to war day in and day out because Jesus has run the race ahead of us. He's gone before us. Remember, because we're united to Jesus by faith, whatever is true of him is either currently true of us or will be true of us in the future. After suffering for Jesus came glory, came the resurrection. After the cross came the crown, and it's true for you too. If you take up your cross, God isn't calling you ultimately to suffer. He's calling you through suffering to glory, to resurrection, to life with him. I want to close with this illustration from the life of Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was one of the great hymn writers of the last two centuries, and she, you may know, was born blind. Now, I can't imagine the difficulty of living my whole life and never being able to see my loved ones, never being able to view the colors of a sunset, 
or the grandeur of mountains or the vastness of the ocean. And I'm sure Fanny Crosby didn't just face suffering because she was blind. She faced suffering for many other reasons. She lived a hard life. But do you know what she said? She said she doesn't regret for one day being born blind. Because she knows at the last day when she is resurrected and given a new body that the first thing that she will see will be the face of Jesus. She knows that all of the suffering that she faced or possibly could face or will face, she knows that all of that suffering pales in comparison to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No matter what you've suffered, no matter what you're suffering now, no matter what you're called to suffer in the future, in Jesus you are blessed. Because we will see Jesus, just like Fanny Crosby. We'll see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we'll be made like him. He will be our God and we will be his people. The suffering that we experience now will feel light in comparison to the weight of glory which is prepared for us. So Jesus is pleading with you, count the cost. The the cost of following me is great, but I am worth it. The reward is greater. Let's pray. Jesus, it's hard to think about suffering, and it's hard um, to remember the suffering that many of us have already faced. We don't want to take our suffering lightly, but we do want to see that you are better. You are greater. You are worth it. So I pray that as we go from here, that we would be equipped to suffer faithfully, not for the sake of suffering, but for your glory and for the hope of the resurrection that is surely ours because you've run the race ahead of us. We pray this in your powerful name.